Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Welcome once again to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. I'm Don Shelley, your host, along with Alexis Shelley. Alexis, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? We were just talking before we began recording here about a number of different ways we might open the podcast, so I'll just mention some of those before we get off into things. We were thinking about the very popular uh, uh, series of uh, cartoons, I guess you would call them, (laughs) from the 1970s, uh, Schoolhouse Rock. And uh, we were particularly thinking about some of the uh, the song pieces there, or the little uh, video clips that related to the American Revolution. We thought that might be a way to start it. We talked about maybe a couple of excerpts of clips from uh, the very popular uh, musical that we both enjoy, the musical Hamilton. But in the end, we decided not to be clever today and just sort of jump, <laughs> jump directly into the podcast. So... Alexis, what's going to be our topic today? So today we're going to be delving into a uh, catalyst for a popular uh, event in American history, the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre. So as we jump back into the Wayback Machine, we're going to set the dials for 1770. And of course, we're going to set it for the northeastern part of uh, what would become the United States, particularly New England. And as we land there, we're going to find ourselves in Boston. And what we're going to find ourselves in the middle is in the middle of, uh, is hotbed the right term, Flex? Uh, to put it mildly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> what we might think of as being the hotbed of what will eventually become the American Revolution. Uh, to sort of set the context, um, the French and Indian War has been completed with the colonies fighting on behalf uh, since they were uh, colonial interests in the British Empire obviously fighting against. In fact, it's called the French and Indian War on this continent. In Europe, it's called what? The Seven Years' War. Seven Years' War. It's called the French and Indian War here in the United States because the enemy were the French and the Indians. And the Indians. And so as a result of that war and the expense of fighting that war uh, on the continent here, the, the American continent, uh, what does uh, Great Britain do at that particular point? Britain needs to raise some money. Um, and one of the ways that they decide to do that is to enforce some various taxes on their colonial interests. Um, and it's important to note as we get started here, uh, Great Britain had colonial interests not just in America, but what we mainly think of as British colonial uh, interests were definitely the 13 colonies in what became the United States. Okay. And so as, the, as that war uh, draws to an end and uh, there's the need for at least from the perspective of the British Crown and British Parliament, to uh, to have revenue coming in to offset that, uh, they pass a series of uh, series of measures. Probably most notably is 1765 when they passed what's called the Stamp Act. What is the Stamp Act? So the Stamp Act essentially requires all uh, forms of all forms of written communication to have a stamp to basically be authorized uh, as legal 
legal forms of communication uh, in the Empire. That ranged from everything from letters to playing cards. So pretty much anything that was printed on some type of paper had to have this stamp that said it was authorized, that it was allowed to be printed, and that of course involved a tax. Okay. So you had to basically, if you had a legal document, so a contract, if you had uh, newspapers, uh, if you a had... A will, it, it, a it, marriage license, any type of legal document had to have that stamp on it. Okay. And so if you are in the business of trade and commerce, where you're reliant more upon perhaps trading goods, uh, being a maritime economy... Uh, you're probably going to have more need for those types of documents versus uh, particularly a colony perhaps that was more agrarian, relied more upon farming, didn't have the need for all of these documents associated with everyday commerce. Correct. If you're living in a port city like Boston uh, and are having to deal with the business of transactions and the business of doing um trading and things like that, you're definitely going to be more impacted by this tax than if you're on a farm somewhere, maybe in uh, New Hampshire or something like that. So uh, one of the results of the Stamp Act being one of these uh, revenue generating acts that are passed by the British Parliament is um, it falls, or at least from the perspective of those that are living in Boston, living in the Massachusetts colony, uh, it falls more upon them perhaps than some of the other colonial interests. And their big uh, concern is when we sort of first see this rise th to the forefront, something that will become a central tenet of the, of the revolution, which is that they are being taxed without having... Representation in Parliament. Yeah, so no taxation without representation becomes the claim. And that representation meaning that they did not have a direct vote in the Parliament, and in fact, it's, um, you know, sometimes we can easily overlook or forget that the government uh, in, the, in the colonies was somewhat self-governed. They had assemblies and they enjoyed that self-government to agree, to agree probably more than their, their British uh, counterparts in the empire. But they also still had royal representatives in the form of govern governors and others who enforced uh, the acts of parliament. Uh, and enforce the, the will of uh, the monarchy. Uh, in this case, it's King George. So um, this is passed in 1765. Uh, they don't take it lying down. There's a growing movement inside of Boston, uh, but really things heat up as we draw to 1770, and the events that heat that up are the events that we refer to as the Boston Massacre. So Alexis, what, what and when was the Boston Massacre. So the Boston Massacre occurred on March 5th of 1770. And basically the uh, incident was outside of the Customs House in, um, in Boston, which is where the King's money, the King's coin is being, uh, being held. Uh, we have of course British soldiers that are guarding that building. And all of a sudden these colonists come up and they start to antagonize. Uh, antagonize those soldiers. Things like throwing stones, throwing snowballs. We think of March and we think snow, but it was March in Boston in 1770, so it was actually snowing, quite cold. So throwing snowballs, throwing stones, things like that, it, it, it escalates to a point that at some point there's debate on if a uh, order was actually given to fire 
Um, it might have just been that a musket discharged accidentally, but ultimately what does happen is that we have some loss of life in the terms of uh, Americans, in terms of colonists. And so automatically that kind of incites even more anti-British sentiment as it's, you know, they're seen as having killed innocent, unarmed colonists that were just walking down the street. Yes, they were antagonizing them, but that didn't that didn't need to end in bloodshed. So what we have here uh, immediately when you start doing research on this topic is one of the first things you start wondering is whether massacre is the appropriate is term. the appropriate word. Yeah, whether that's the appropriate term to use. Again, as you mentioned, there were uh, there was a loss of life. Three people died. Mm-hmm. Others were wounded. Uh, probably one of the most notable things that comes from this is a guy by the name of Crispus Attucks is one of one of the dead. He actually is uh, someone of, of mixed descent. Yes. Um, we would uh, probably use the term African-American today uh, is one of those that dies. But again, it's not just the fact that uh, soldiers suddenly picked up their muskets and decided to raid a, the home or decided just to fire. Uh, this was an antagonistic crowd that was, um, that were, again, uh, the reference to the article that I was looking at talks about clubs and stones and snowballs. Yeah, there was no peaceful assembly happening. There was definitely some aggression being uh, shown against those soldiers. So the response by the governor uh, of, of, the, uh, of the colony, Thomas Hutchinson, is that he um, promises there's going to be an inquiry. And in fact, the next day, uh, there's a little bit of a withdrawal of troops to sort of de-escalate tensions. Uh, but when everything is said and done, eight soldiers, including one officer and four civilians, are arrested. And they're not charged uh, with, with a light thing. They're actually charged with... They are charged with murder. Yeah. And they are facing the death penalty. And so this is uh, a situation that is now going to be adjudicated in a colonial court. And it's sort of interesting to note here that one of the, uh, the characters in this drama uh, for the defense, for the soldiers, is a name that we know from American history and from revolutionary history. Who is that, Alexis? It absolutely is. That would be one John Adams. Yeah. The second president of the United States, uh, the first uh, vice president of the United States, and uh, happens to be the cousin of another well-known Adams, uh, Sam Adams. Yeah, not just known for the beer. Yeah, who's, who's actually known as probably being one of the uh, more, um, the term that jumps into my mind, don't get to use it very often, is firebrands of the American Revolution. I think that's an apt, apt description of him. Yeah, so we actually find a situation here where there's going to be a trial. And uh, instead of having representation that comes from England to defend the soldiers, they're actually defended by um, a, a colonist. They're defended by Adams. And the ultimate result of that is, is anyone found guilty of murder? Two people are found guilty, but they are not found guilty of murder. It is important to note. They are only found guilty of manslaughter. Uh, Adams successfully argues that these soldiers acted in self-defense. And so that is not murder. Uh, While there was loss of life, it was completely a self-defense act. And so they're able to commute that sentence to manslaughter. Uh, of the eight that are on trial, only two are convicted of that. The other six are found innocent. And, of course, the uh, consequence for a conviction of manslaughter is much, much different than a con- uh, consequence for a conviction of murder. These uh, two individuals are only branded um, as, a, as a consequence of their actions. They are not, they are not killed. 
Okay, so the end result is uh, some are punished for their acts. Uh, so this doesn't go off as being something that is totally swept under the rug or there's no response to. But again, the backdrop or the setting here is probably the thing that's most interesting to note in the sense that the um, there were heightened tensions because uh, British troops were being quartered in the city. I think you mentioned, as we were talking before starting the podcast, Boston's a city of around maybe what? About 16,000. Um, so, uh, so a big city for the day, um, but not not anywhere near what we, we would think of when we think Boston. But yet there is something on the order of about 2,000 British troops that are being quartered. And when troops are being quartered, it's the requirement that they're actually staying in... They're staying in people's houses. Um, and, and those folks are required to provide... Lodging... Food, um, basically their basic needs, their basic necessities that they're needing on a daily basis are being required of those colonists. So in addition to the, um, the Stamp Act that we mentioned earlier and the rising tensions about uh, taxation and things that, that act like taxation, there's this backdrop of uh, the citizens of Boston enduring more expense for the upkeep of the soldiers which from the perspective of the British crown is a perfectly logical thing. Those soldiers were there to... To defend the colonies. And, and to protect them. Uh, but this is sort of the backdrop that exists. And so the term massacre, and again, it, it was an incident. People lost their lives. So whether or not that's too strong a term or not becomes something that's picked up. And I guess what we would think of today as being more the propaganda machine of the revolution. So how does that come about? Definitely. Um... Following the Boston Massacre, what has become known as the Boston Massacre, uh, we have several different publications, most notably the Boston Gazette, um, which is the paper of the time in Boston. They publish an engraving actually done by Paul Revere, another famous name uh, in American history, uh, that depicts the incident. It's important to note he actually copied the, um, the engraving from another artist who had done a, a rendition of the events that took place. But this engraving is very inflammatory in its uh, depiction of the event. It shows the British definitely as the instigators of it, um, and it kind of magnifies the uh, the gunfire gun that happened, the uh, activity that took place, makes it much more of a explosive event in American history. Uh, than what probably took place in reality. Uh, and it's important to note that in the time, how a lot of people got their news was by the newspaper and by these accounts that were written and published. A lot of people weren't there to watch it. We, of course, were before the adv advent of uh, television, social media. It, there, was, there were very, very few on the ground eyewitnesses account, eyewitness accounts please, I need to talk today, <laughs> eyewitness accounts. Um, and so as you kind of took what the few people that were there saw and kind of expounded it, eventually it kind of becomes this game of telephone. And so somebody, like we mentioned, living out on their farm in New Hampshire is getting an possibly un an inflated uh, version of, of the truth. Okay. We spent a lot of time, probably more than we normally do on most of our episodes, giving this background because it's sort of important to understand, the, the, again, the context that the event happens in. But what we're going to explore today as our fork in time is imagine that the Boston Massacre never happens. And so 
the consequence of the Boston Massacre is eventually uh, this um, becomes a rallying cry for some of the revolutionary forces. We've talked about the propaganda versus maybe reality, uh, how much truth versus embellishment goes into what's there. Uh, an event that happens after that is uh, also obviously a very well-known event in history. That's the Boston Tea Party, Tea Party where, um, again, following from the justification of uh, what happened three years before in 1770, uh, a group of uh, rebels, I guess the, the revolutionary forces, ends up uh, destroying what was very valuable property. It was uh, tea from the uh, British East India Company, and they end up dumping that tea into the uh, into Boston Harbor. That produces the response from the British Crown of closing the harbor, and now it's not just imposing revenue acts, but imposing a series of punitive laws that are leading towards the essentially the recension of whatever self-government rights the Massachusetts Bay Colony has. So the escalation from 1770, the Boston Massacre, up to 1773, late 1773, actually December of 1773, with the Boston Tea Party, this sets the stage for what will be the Continental Congress in 1774. And uh, we won't go into all of the history because we could spend literally hours talking about all of the history, which is not the purpose here. But certainly we're now headed down the path with the Continental Congress towards um, what eventually becomes the American Revolution. Uh, the first shots of the revolution are fired at the battles of Lexington and Concord, although you might argue that the first shots of the revolution in some ways were fired in Boston in 1770. Uh, with what became known as the Boston Massacre. So again, the, the fork that we're going to choose to pursue here is that the events never happen. The Boston Massacre never happens. So there's no sort of uh, catalyst event uh, for the propaganda machine and then the ultimate, the things that flow from that. So under that scenario, as we're talking about alternatives, as we were sort of thinking them through, I think the two ways that I think of best describing them is there's revolution delayed mm -hmm. as one possibility and then there's revolution avoided avoided so let's begin with talking about revolution delayed uh, so at that time uh, the american colonies of which um, we, we know and think of eventually being the 13 colonies of the revolution are part of the british empire uh, what are some of the other colonial interests? You mentioned them a little bit before that there were others. What are some of the other colonial interests at the time? Uh, places like Jamaica, places like um, the Caribbean islands. It's actually noted that there are 26 British colonies in what we think of as Caribbean and North America today. So the uh, what has now become the U.S. only represented half of that. It was only 13 of them. So places like Jamaica, Barbados... Um, several several uh, islands in the Caribbean were, were also part of the British colonies and British crown. And probably the largest um, entity that we think of today that was also a British possession would have been... Our neighbor to the north, Canada. It would be Canada. And so under the concept of revolution delayed, um, thinking that through, the question that, that, that raises to mind is would there have been perhaps another catalyst action other than uh, the Boston Massacre uh, that would have been a catalyst. I, I think it's fair probably to argue that there likely could have been something that would have been a catalyst. 
Again, the backdrop is for five years before the Boston Massacre, there's a lot of displeasure over uh, the taxation, uh, the acts that have been passed. Again, this concept of taxation without appropriate representation exists there. So isn't it just as likely maybe something else would have set off the fuse if the Boston Massacre might not have set it off? I think definitely it's it certainly is likely. And you also need to remember that Boston was not the only big city in terms of the colonies. You had places like New York, New York, uh, Philadelphia, places like that, that were also port cities. So they were dealing with the same kinds of things that Boston was dealing with. So I think it's not too much of a far-fetched assumption to say that if Boston hadn't had something like this, is it possible that New York, that Philadelphia, that some other place would have had a similar incident that would have lit that fuse? But it's also fair to mention in this idea of maybe revolution delayed was that while there certainly was part of the citizenry of Boston, of the colonies in general, of New England, depending on how you want to break this down, there were a lot of folks in the, uh, in the American colonies who were not interested in revolution, that had a very different idea towards how to respond to these acts. That's a fair thing to say. Absolutely. And so there were those who were actually looking to find ways to, I guess, find a compromise solution or to make redress for their case to Parliament and, and or the British monarchy. Uh, that didn't involve the use of guns and didn't involve declaring revolution. So one of the things that we looked at, for example, was even after the Boston Massacre, again, now we are in our assumption saying that it didn't happen, but imagine a scenario where the First Continental Congress might have been called not... As a reaction. As a reaction to the Boston Massacre and not as a reaction to the Boston Tea Party and the escalation that's there, but as a more peaceful, organized political uh, body that's going to make redress to the uh, uh, to Britain. So under that scenario, for example, even at the, at the First Continental Congress, which happens in 1774, uh, there's even a plan that's put forth by one of the delegates that's there who is considered more of a loyalist. Uh, he happens to be by the name of Joseph Galloway. He's from Pennsylvania. And he actually proposed something that he called the Plan of Union. And what was the concept of the Plan of Union? The plan of union was basically that uh, the American colonies would be united as kind of an underling uh, to the British Empire. We would have a president uh, that was essentially appointed by uh, by the king, which at this point is George the Third. Um, so he would be appointed, and then we would in turn elect delegates to go from our colonies and to serve under that president that was uh, appointed by. Um, the king. It's important to note that in that plan, though, the colonies would have veto power over anything that was decided in Parliament in terms of taxation um, and things like that. So we would have ultimate say on whether we decided that we were going to follow what Parliament said. So it was a plan that would enable the colonies to continue to be part of Great Britain. In fact, uh, uh, he, he ref, it was referred to as the as the you know, plan of union between the British Empire and the American colonies, uh, but it addressed the issue that was still the burning political issue of the day, which was this idea of not having representation as it was related to taxation. Uh, now, of course, this was we actually don't know <laughs> what the re, uh, what the response of the British Crown would have been to a proposal like this. I think it's fair to assume they would have not been 
wholeheartedly in support of it. And British Parliament probably would, would not have liked the idea that they were ceding power to another political entity across the sea. Uh, but uh, we don't know what their response would have been because it never got off the ground inside of the uh, of the Continental Congress to actually be formally proposed uh, to Great Britain. Right, that idea was voted down. So, you know, one possible idea that could have arisen is, again, a number of different paths that would have been political compromise, political solutions that would have stopped short of actual revolution or at that point short of actual independence. It's important to note even by 1776 that everyone was in favor of declaring independence even though they supported the cause of having self-rule, self-autonomy and not having this idea of taxation without representation. Independence was sort of the radical extreme for a lot of the folks that were even members of the, uh, of the, of the Congress that gathered and declared independence. That was not plan A. Uh, so you can imagine a couple of different possibilities, something like Galloway's plan of union or some other political compromise where there might have been an arrangement that would have been reached that would have changed the sharing of power and, and authority between uh, the colonists and between the British Empire. Absolutely. It's also important to note that in 1775, of course, the Continental Congress has been formed at this point. They actually draft what's called the Olive Branch Petition. Uh, it's another kind of, again, it's exactly what it says. It's an olive branch. It's a, we've messed up, but let's work it, work together on a compromise, figure out how we can kind of go forward in peace. Um, it's famously sent to, uh, sent to Parliament, sent to King George, and he refuses to even acknowledge it, e it even exists. He won't even look at it, much less consider it. So that's another point where maybe if we don't have the Boston Massacre, maybe we don't have the Boston Tea Party, we form the Continental Congress, but then, all of a sudden, but then because we don't have these things in the background, maybe George III might have been open to reading that petition, might have... Uh, might have galvanized uh, a peace in a different way in terms of kind of this feeling that fighting was the only way to go forward and to resolve this. Right. So uh, I think that's also representative of the fact that there, was a, there were a number of efforts to avoid reaching the point of needing to actually take up arms and fight a revolution. The, again, the, the, the more moderate forces, uh, again, some of those may have been the folks who were less impacted by some of the taxation considerations as well. Uh, would have uh, wanted to find a solution that was more of a peaceful solution and that would allow them to remain British subjects. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, it's, to me, it's interesting, you know, as, as a student of history, to think about sort of this tension that existed between um, America was a different place and had grown up under a different set of um, forces and um, in terms of external forces, the things that were creating sort of what became the American character and the American political mentality, again, more of this self-governance, self-rule being removed, needing that by necessity. But at the same time, there was still, uh, there was still prestige to be part of the British Empire. There was still value to be part of the British Empire. The, the rest of the continent has other continental forces from Europe that are active. There's Spain, there's still France. Uh, others that are out there as well. So uh, again, they're, they're, the idea of maybe revolution delayed or independence delayed sort of focuses around the fact that there were a lot of forces that may have ultimately led to uh, what we what we think of as being the uh, the 
the need, at least from the American perspective, for the for the revolution. Uh, but it may not have happened as fast. It may not have happened in the same timing, uh, and it it certainly may have happened in a very different way, uh, as a result of not having sort of the events that the Boston Massacre represents the first line of of action in leading to the Boston Tea Party and then ultimately to Lexington, Concord, and the rest of the revolution. So that's sort of the idea of revolution delayed. Any other thoughts on that, Alexis? I think we've pretty much covered revolution delayed. Probably the more interesting concept, though, is the idea of revolution avoided. avoided. Now, are we suggesting in the idea of revolution avoided that there would not ever have become an independent, what we think of today as United States of America? I think there definitely would have been something akin to an independent United States of America. Um, but I tend to be of the view that I think it would be more along the terms of our neighbor to the North Canada. Um, kind of this gradual easing of transition of power till eventually it's, we'll give you your independence, but we'll continue to support you, we'll continue to be an ally to you, we'll continue to to essentially have a lot of our systems and a lot of our laws and things like that kind of a mesh together, which is kind of how it is between Canada and, and Great Britain today. So I, I think it would have been a gradual um, transition to some, some kind of relationship like that. So there would have been an independent, for all intents and purposes, uh, United States of America, but still would have had that relationship with Great Britain, again, much like Canada. Okay, so um, we use the term commonwealth. Uh, for example, Canada is politically independent mm -hmm. of uh, the United Kingdom now. Uh, however, their head of state, their formal head of state, is still... The monarch. Uh, it's currently Queen Elizabeth II. Right. So they are independent. Uh, no one doubts their independence. But the affinity or the relationship that exists as former members of... Still the very strong. The former members of the empire transitioning into this idea of the commonwealth for mutual benefit, uh, support for each other would be very different. Um, so the United States perhaps uh, actually does have, maybe at some point under that scenario, under revolution avoided, does have a monarch. That monarch is the monarch of the United Kingdom. It's just that they're still politically independent and the monarch is just the head of state. So if that were to happen, what's potentially some of the timing on that? Well, if we look at Canada as a model, uh, Canada gains her independence in about the 1860s. So it's really not very far removed from when America gains her independence as a result of the American Revolution. So I think we probably wouldn't have had to wait long at all um, going on the Canada model. It's possible that we could have been the first uh, British colony to gain independence, not by fighting for it, but just by being given it. Right. And uh, I can't help but think that, um, so let's assume maybe it's the early 19th century, so 1810, 1820, some catalyst of events, a change in uh, the British monarchy or whatever is the cause for the realization. Um, one, of, you know, one of the most interesting things to me to think through there is the concept of what made governing, what made the American Revolution successful in so many ways was how difficult it was to communicate and govern uh, a colonial holding so far away uh, from the island of Great Britain. Uh, communication took a long time to move. Troops took a long time to move. 
Um, it's interesting to think through how that might have changed if you progress far enough along for technology, ultimately not the technology of the telegraph or something like that, but just uh, faster transportation, um, you know, steam-driven transportation versus wind-driven transportation on the seas, uh, that if you actually have revolution delayed long enough, then this communication, what makes revolution almost or independence necessary is the difficulty by distance. And as the distance is shrunk by technology, it's, it's hard not to wonder how that might have changed or made it more possible to be, uh, to be unified. Right. It's harder and it becomes harder and harder as we go forward in time with the advantages of technology to use the lack of communication as a justification because we shorten that gap and we close that gap. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing to think about in the idea of revolution delayed is what was going on on the um, North American continent during the period of time. So, uh, you know, we, we think of America today as stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Well, that all didn't happen at once. Right. I mean, even during the period of time of the American Revolution, there's already expansion from the eastern seaboard of the of the what we think of today as the United States into the interior. Uh, those are just expansions. If you in fact, if you look at maps of the day, you'll see the colonies or the states that we're accustomed to just go a lot further west. Right. Uh, but they eventually run into this uh, this sort of wall on the map, and that wall on the map is the territory that's controlled by France. France. It's not until the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 uh, that the land um, that the land area of the fledgling United States is doubled, as uh, the United States acquires the territory that had been French territory in North America. Uh, if you think of a scenario being different, the rise of Napoleon on the continent, um, and instead of um, the United States sort of being supportive of French revolutionary interests as they were, maybe they're much lo more loyal to the British crown, and so there's a different dynamic uh, in, in world geopolitics of the day, the sort of the, I uh, can't help but think of a tale of two cities, the sort of the axis that runs between London and Paris. And Paris. Uh, but at the same time, what would have been going on, imagine you know some of the, uh, the war against Napoleon spilling over to what's going on with uh, the colonies still loyal to Britain uh, actively fighting against French interests in North America. And the expansion is not by buying land from France, but by conquering it, conquering land from France. And as a result, that land is not conquered under the American flag, but it's conquered and expanded under the British flag. And so it's interesting to think about what that would have meant so again, this is now a, a deep extension off of No Boston Massacre. There's no revolution in the timing that we're accustomed to. The same events go on in early 19th century, in late 18th century France with revolutionary interest there. Perhaps not as um, easily carrying forward without the recent success of the American Revolution. It's hard to, to not imagine. It's easy to forget that there was a connection between right. these two revolutions, even though they were very different in terms of what they were. And so maybe there's a, a different path for France, uh, not having as, uh, as successful or as timely a revolution. Maybe there still is a French Revolution. Maybe there is or is not the rise of Napoleon. Even if there is the rise of Napoleon, maybe there's now Napoleon that's posed in North America by 
loyal British colonies who have perhaps have now achieved some form of union or unique representation inside of the British Empire because of their growing financial support for the empire. I mean, again, these are a lot of different what-ifs that are hard to sort of factor all together in terms of the equation, but it's not hard to imagine uh, world geopolitics, if you will, of the early 19th century being very different with a loyal-to-the-British-crown America versus an independent America. Of course, uh, there were other things that were going on that may have been catalysts for revolution in the early 19th century. Uh, one of the sort of artifacts of the American Revolution and then the Constitution is deferring the question of slavery um, in, the, in the United States, the young United States. Uh, ultimately, the, that's also uh, conflict deferred, not conflict avoided. <laughs> uh, certainly erupts again in the American Civil War in the 1860s. But uh, in the period of time that we think of the American Revolution traditionally occurring, the 1770s, 1780s, and um, subsequent, what actually happened regarding slavery inside of the British Empire? So, actually, slavery in the British Empire was completely abolished in 1833. There was the Slave Trade Act of 1807, which essentially made it illegal to trade the slaves, but the actual act of slavery was abolished in 1833. Obviously, that's much sooner than uh, we abolished slavery, not until the 1860s. So, that's another uh, possibility that could have inflamed some tensions as we had slave owners saying, no, 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 I like my slaves. I don't, I don't want to abolish, abolish slavery um, that early. That could have been another possible jumping off point for some tension uh, as those southern slave owners were fighting um, what could have been uh, the slavery, Abol slavery Abolition Act of 1833 that we would have been uh, subject to if we decided to be part of, the, part of the British Empire. Yeah, and thinking about that from my perspective, or is that it's sort of ironic that much of the initial um, causation for the American Revolution as we know it in regular history is driven by more of the merchant class, the trading class we were talking about before, how the Stamp Act impacted that a lot more, uh, how trade was, uh, was impacted by, uh, by these taxation measures. And so if you find 40, 50 years later with the change in the status of slavery, an entirely different set of, of uh, interests, political interests, economic interests uh, in the American colonies may have had a very different reason for wanting to, uh, to protest, uh, continue to be part of the, the, the empire of the Commonwealth uh, for entirely different reasons. And so the catalyst for the revolution might not have been taxation, but the, taxa the catalyst for a revolution might have been the, question, the question of slavery. And sort of that scenario, it's interesting to think about how that revolution might have played out differently. Uh, very much a known fact. We see this expressed later, in uh, or actually even in the in the in the in the, in the historical American Revolution, uh, that the northern colonies were not as inclined to slavery. Uh, some of them were engaged in the slave trade. Let's let's don't ignore that fact. But the economies of the north and the south, in terms of the the American colonies were quite different, uh, being one being much more merchant-driven, uh, which is more common in the northern and mid-Atlantic colonies, and obviously very agriculturally driven in the southern colonies. There was agriculture everywhere. It was still an agrarian society compared to what we think of as being a modern industrial society, but much more of a merchant society 
existing in the sense of that being the primary mode of commerce for Boston, for New York, right. uh, for even uh, Philadelphia. And so uh, the interests were different. And so it's interesting to think about the idea, again, now back to revolution, not avoided, but revolution delayed, is that the catalyst might not have been um, um, the acts that we think of as being in the 1770s and the Boston Massacre, again, our, our jumping off point for this. But it's sort of an entirely different, if you will, atrocity right. that would actually be the catalyst for the revolution, the, the ongoing a situation with slavery that was uh, being recognized by, by Britain as being less and less tenable and something that needed to be eliminated on moral grounds. Uh, where there would, might have been an economic fight back from the American colonies about that in the either in the eight, the, the first decade of the 19th century or the 1830s. So as we draw things to sort of a conclusion here for the episode, uh, what I'm struck with is this concept that, uh, like so many events in history, we tend to create a simplistic narrative of what happened there. The, the American Revolution is about... Uh, taxation without representation and uh, being unfairly put upon by a, ironically, what I guess is thought of even from a modern context as a foreign monarch. It was, it would, no, it was the monarch mm-hmm. who, who had founded the colonies. Uh, and then uh, being able to put a spin on something like a brawl in the streets with a crowd that gets out of hand being dubbed a... Massacre. Yeah, being dubbed a massacre. And uh, again, you know, the, the, famous, the famous phrase is that history is sort of always written by the victors and, you know, our perceptions on what is, um, what is quote unquote right or wrong is colored by how things turned out because we know the end of the story. Uh, but it's certainly the case that um, there was no guarantee that the American Revolution was going to be a success. And again, as we've talked about here with no Boston massacre, sure. with no incident, uh, without... Um, uh, a, a group of firebrands that were hot on the idea of, uh, of of launching a revolution. It's easy, quite easy, to imagine a different course that would have had a a slower progress to how things would have played out, and with that slower progress, maybe a different progress, because um, the history of what we think of as being the United States today would have been influenced by other factors that didn't get a chance to influence them. Uh, because of the timing of the revolution and 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 the uh, and the American success in gaining independence. In fact, we were talking about this before the podcast. There are sort of two wars for independence. We think of the American Revolution, but it's it's hard not to think of the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, again, between which two combatants? That would be Great Britain and the newly formed United States of America. Yeah, which was in some ways sort of an effort to reverse. The outcome of you know literally a generation before, and so that wouldn't have happened as a result of uh, of a potentially a revolution delayed. So um, sort of concluding it here, it's uh, it's interesting to think about how just the actions maybe of one itchy trigger finger <laughs> or the accidental discharge of a weapon. We really don't know to this day exactly what happened for right. sure. Uh, could have changed the course of not just American history, but obviously because of the influence that America has had over the last 200 plus years, both on the uh, North American continent, but also globally. If you change American history, you very quickly change the history of the world, the world as we know it. 
And so, um, again, those, those small forks in time and those small ripples in the pond can ripple a long way down. So we hope you enjoyed today as we've talked a little bit about how uh, a snowball fight turned gunfight on the streets of Boston in 1770 it had an impact on the American Revolution as we know it. And if you remove that event, how we may, uh, instead of uh, celebrating Washington's birthday today, maybe celebrating some very... Uh, British holidays because the head of state would be uh, her, her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. So uh, again, uh, for Alexis, thanks for joining me again today, Lex. Thanks for having me. And uh, for myself, uh, we want to say thanks again for joining us here on A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. As we conclude, uh, just reminding you that not only do we thank you most for your time, but there's uh, other ways that you can reach out and interact with us. We certainly encourage you to visit our new website, which is now up and fully running. That's aforkintimepodcast.com. Going there is now sort of the one-stop place you can go for all the ways that you can interact with us. Uh, So, for example, you'll find the episodes of the podcast itself. You'll find links uh, to the various feeds that you might use to bring that into your podcast reader. If you just pick us up occasionally or you've stumbled into us, one of the ways that you can make sure you don't miss an episode is to actually subscribe to the podcast. Make us uh, appear magically, automatically inside of Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever your podcast catcher of choice is. Alexis, uh, what's another way that uh, interacting with us can be valuable? We are also active on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Pinterest. Uh, Links to those uh, various social media outlets can be found at A Fork in Time. Uh, podcast.com as well Um, that really is your one-stop shop destination but we look forward to interacting with you we hope that you uh, leave us a comment leave us a message we'd love to hear from you of course feedback is always appreciated and we hope you enjoy uh, join us next time yeah the one thing I'll mention about the feedback there is on the new uh, on the new website there are forums and for each episode there's a forum post that's made so it's an opportunity for you to provide comment and feedback specifically on that on that uh, particular episode. Maybe your thoughts are different than ours. In fact, I would expect that some of your thoughts might be different <laughs> than ours. Uh, you may have thought of other things that were not part of our thinking when we looked down this particular alternate path. We understand that A Fork in Time is about hypotheticals and it's about speculation, which means by definition it's about opinion. Mm-hmm. And so your opinion matters too. Uh, the other thing you'll also find there on our on our webpage at aforkintimepodcast.com is a link to our Patreon page where you have the opportunity to become a supporter, a patron of the program. Uh, that's a, a way of stepping up and participating. It goes above and beyond just listening, although we certainly appreciate that. A chance to contribute to the podcast as sort of a producer or a, a part of the community and some of the special perks that we provide to our Patreon supporters. So again, Alexis already signed off a little bit earlier there. I added this little epitaph onto the end. <laughs> Uh, But we certainly welcome you joining us today, and we hope that you find us again and join us the next time on A Fork in Time. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Join us next time.